Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Footnote Forum Podcast, part of CUNY School of Law's Law Review. This is our podcast version of the Footnote Forum, the digital version of our Law Review, which is a journal we put out every year, twice a year usually. We've been bringing you podcast episodes for the last three years. We're happy to bring another episode. It's part of our 25.1 volume, which is our fall release 2021. The theme of Footnote Forum in the fall of 2021 was challenging the assumptions of reform. We tried to print articles on our website from incarcerated or formerly incarcerated writers, and also from a professor who deals in the public defense world. The idea of doing that was to ask ourselves, what counts as legal scholarship? Is it just highly academic works that require a lot of research, written by professors, or can it also be based on lived experience? And when you have people who've been through the criminal legal system, maybe they are unable to to research to support the things that they've seen and the statements they're making with academic research, but they can tell you it's true because they lived it. Do we consider that scholarship in the same way we do the other stuff? So this fall, we've been running articles on our website that are either highly academic, very personal, or anything in between. We want to continue that theme in this episode of the podcast by bringing you a roundtable discussion from some of the formerly incarcerated students who are currently enrolled at CUNY School of Law. So I'm joined today by my friends. Let's introduce ourselves. I'm Colby Williams. I'm formerly incarcerated. I'm a 3L at CUNY School of Law. And uh, I'm a footnote forum editor on the CUNY Law Review. I've participated in moot court, done some internships. I'm a friend and a son and a brother. And I'm Phil Miller. I'm a 2L at CUNY School of Law. I am also formerly incarcerated. And I've done lots of things, but we'll probably get into some of those as we go on. One more person is left to introduce themselves. And I am Jordan Sudol. I am a 3L at CUNY School of Law. and. I'm just a man. Just a man. Who's also nice. <laughs> nice. I'm just a nice man. Just a nice guy. There are some others at our school. We have classmates and peers who've seen the inside of jails, seen the inside of prisons, have run-ins with the cops, maybe with immigration officials. So this is not like, we don't have a monopoly on this subject. We're just the only people who could show up today for this podcast. So we're going to try to bring you some valuable insight about our experiences as people who've had involvement with the criminal legal system, but, but then went on to pursue a degree in law and who've now had involvement with the academic world in a law school. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about why we think our experiences are valuable in that world, why we think it's going to serve us and the legal community as we move out into the uh, the job sector and hopefully get employed someday. Hopefully we graduate. Hopefully we pass the bar. Hopefully we actually get jobs. Um, so we're going to bring all that today in an extension of, like I said, what counts as legal scholarship and focusing on lived experience. So I want to ask you guys to start off. What made you want to go to law school? And why do you think it has uh, been a good decision or a bad decision so far? I guess I'll answer that question first. 
Thanks, Jordan. Um, I was actually trying to do the same thing to Jordan, but he made it more uh, obvious. <laughs> um, so what made me want to go to law school? Well, during my incarceration for, I was incarcerated in New York State Prison for 17 years. And during that time, I worked as what was called, uh, or it's referred to as a jailhouse lawyer. And doing that kind of work inside, helping guys challenge their cases, challenging the, uh, also challenging the conditions of their confinement. I developed a passion for the law and I became good at it. I began winning some cases and it was something that I wanted to pursue and just continue to excel at. Um, at the time, I didn't know I could go to law school, so that wasn't my desire at the time. Um, I didn't learn that until I read a newspaper article in 2005 that featured three or four attorneys in New York State who also had served time in prison. And when I, re when I read that article, that's when it first dawned on me that I could actually pursue a career in law after prison. And once I had that idea in my head, it stuck with me and it made me want to become the best I could be at every legal thing that I had, you know, every type of legal work that I could do, whether it was divorce proceedings for people, child custody proceedings, criminal cases, civil cases, 1983 actions, whatever it was, I want to be really good at everything. Um, so that stuck with me. When I finally got out, I got back into criminal justice work for a while and I was still debating, still on the fence about going to law school because it was another three year commitment. But at the end of it all, I decided that, you know, I have all this, this whole wealth of experience and it would be a shame to have developed this skill and not pursue the degree that could make, that could allow me to practice these skills on the outside. Um, and so I decided to give it a go and I am very happy I did. I'm a 2L now and I'm almost, I can't even say I'm halfway through the journey. I am almost halfway through the journey. Um, I am enjoying it though, learning a lot and looking forward to actually graduating though and getting my degree so I can go practice. I want to go cause some trouble in a good way. For once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan, what about you? What made me want to become an attorney? Well, I guess, um, you know, when I started uh, college behind the wall, I... I just always knew, I guess, that a bachelor's degree was just never going to be enough or I was never going to be satisfied with a bachelor's degree. So I was always um, looking for what's next. Um, and then for me, um, you know, Phil talked about seeing a, a news article where formerly incarcerated um, people that became attorneys. I saw a, a 60 Minutes piece um, a couple of days after I got home about a, a formerly incarcerated federal inmate that won a case in the Supreme Court. And um, it really in intrigued me and inspired me. And, um, you know, because I, I used to do uh, some, some law work behind the wall, but um, my past experiences and then seeing that 60 Minutes piece, I think the combination of the two um, really is what ultimately led me to uh, apply to CUNY. Uh, you know, I've been going into my final year. It's been a long, long, long stretch. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely um, very uh, excited that I did it, honestly. Even though I've, I haven't been excited about the last two years of school, um, now in the third year of clinic work, really starting to um, experience the real reason that I came to law school in the first place. So I guess now embarking on that journey, you know, um, definitely has re-sparked interest for me.
Great. I think for me, my my law school origin story always feels a little less righteous than everybody else's. I was uh, I had like a long period of probation, and I was just like, I found that to be very difficult. Just like working to get by, you gotta you gotta have a job. You gotta be there when they show up. You need to be home when they tell you to. You know, they're gonna check out your residence. You need to be in their office when they tell you to be there. Pee in this cup when you need to. You know what I mean? It's just like there's a lot, and it it's, it felt like a lot to me. And I I guess I got it in my head like them like I didn't I shouldn't dream anymore. Like ambition that's for other people now. You need to like figure out what's the best life for you within the limits that the probation office will allow you to live. And it felt like very, it felt like pretty restricting. And then at some point, so I, I, you know, I did okay. Like I got by, I worked, worked hard, worked multiple jobs. I felt like my life was going pretty good, but I just didn't like hope for a lot or think about a lot. Like I just wanted to get through probation. I didn't know what was going to happen next. And um, at some point I was dating this woman who was finishing up medical school she did not have a criminal record, but still her and all of her classmates seemed like they just complained about it all the time. And I found myself thinking like, man, I could do that. Like your life is not bad like that. You get to be a doctor after this. Like that sounds awesome. You get to like do surgery or whatever you want. The world is your oyster. You're gonna be making so much money. And then it, it like the thought just hit me. It was like the first time I let myself think about myself doing something like that, you know? And I was like, what if I, what if I do go to medical school? Why not? Am I allowed to do that? I didn't know. So I started looking it up. Turns out probably not allowed to go to medical school. I don't think they're gonna let me have a medical license. But that did make me dream a little bit. And I was like, well, what kind of school could I go to? What are the possibilities out there? Maybe I could do something. Maybe I could dream again. And I found law school. And I searched online for law school with a felony. And I found, just like you guys, I found articles about people who are out there practicing. Tara Simmons in Washington State. I found Sean Hopwood as well. Um, some people locally who, who work in public defense agencies here in New York City. And I just started calling them and emailing them and asking questions. Come to find out there's this whole network of people out there who have involvement with the justice system and are in law school or have graduated practice in law or whatever. They turned me on to CUNY School of Law, which I had never even heard of. I'm not from New York. There were students there who had an organization called FILSA, the Formerly Incarcerated Law Student Advocacy Association. I got their emails, got their phone numbers, started calling them too, and, and one thing led to another. And it was the first time I let myself think like, if I could do anything, what would I do? And I hadn't had those thoughts in like a long time since I was a kid. And I, I think I, you know, it felt like it was for me finally. It was like something I was gonna do for me and for my family and for like people who, my friends, people that had been with me the whole time. I was like, yeah, I'm not just gonna settle for whatever I can get. I'm gonna like, I'm gonna go for something. And that, uh, that set off like a, a lot. Most of it was in my head, but it was like, it was like a, I finally saw like a path to freedom in a lot of ways that was really good for me. I think it's been a good decision too. You know, I think I got to meet a lot of people, got opportunities I never thought I'd get. And I, I think uh, I think the work's gonna be fulfilling. 
which brings me to something else I'd love to hear from you guys about. What, the work is fulfilling to me because I, you know, I feel like I bring some experience to the table that other people can't bring. So far with your internships or with legal work you did before law school, whether it was behind bars or not, um, can you talk to us a little bit about like your experience and how it has enriched your practice or your view of the practice or even your classroom experience during law school? Jordan. So I don't know if it's really enriched. Um, I don't know if my ex past experience has enriched law school yet. Um, at least not yet anyway, right? Because your first two years are really mostly classroom based. You, know, you take a midterm, you take a final and the class is done. Um, so now I'm hoping with clinic and, and being able to, to do interviews and, and meet, you know, real people that have real um, legal issues. Um, you know, I think it's going to bring back a lot of feelings of just being on that other side of the table, you know, um, you know, knowing what it's like to be um, involved in the, in the legal system. So I, I think once I get to start experiencing those experiences, then I feel like my past will help um, not enrich me, but I hope to en en enrich my clients' lives, you know, and, and, and make them even better. And I guess, you know, um, there was a study um, I remember reading about in undergrad, and it's it pretty much boils it down to it was a study, a study done on formerly incarcerated that um, went on to go to college and graduate. And overall, it most of the goals are formerly incarcerated that go on to become college graduates is just to enrich the lives of others is to give back. And, um, I think ultimately that's my goal. It's not even for myself, you know, it's just, it's for others. I think, uh, you know, I, I want to enrich others lives because of my past experiences. How do you think that'll happen? Like just by being an attorney who brings some compassion to the table? I don't think it's as, as simple as that. So I think it's about finding a balance in your, in your work life and being able to do things that you really believe in. Um, you know, those kind of causes, like, it, it's not about money. Um, it's just about, you know, helping others. Uh, I mean, that, that's that's honestly what I what I go back to. And and how how do I help others? Well, I guess in one sense is being the best attorney that I could possibly be and fighting as hard as I possibly can. But I think there's also, um, and it has nothing to do with clients, but it's just finding that legal work that really fulfills you. 
And I think you need a combination of both. Yeah, I don't know if I could say that my prior experience while incarcerated has enriched my law school experience, but I can say that it has made some things easier for me in law school. Um, for example, I was the instructor of a legal research course inside. So when I took legal research here at the school at CUNY Law, it was like literally the easiest class I've had of all my classes so far. Um, same thing with criminal law, because I'd worked in that for so long. Um, other classes that were most, not mostly easy, but easier or LEDP. Um, not, you know, the amount of reading made it very hectic. <laughs> it was difficult because of the amount of work that was required, but the the concepts, everything that were discussed were things I had lots of experience in. Even now, at class, I have uh, constitutional structures. So far, there's been no new material introduced to me because I've encountered all these things many, many times before. So it's made my law school experience a little bit easier in that regard. Um, in terms of enriching, there was something else I wanted to say. I cannot remember it right now. Just ramble. What about what about on internships or or in in practice? Maybe oh, in your career so before law school. The word practice just triggered it. So again, not well. well it's not enriching. Um, while I was doing legal work inside of prison, it was very hands on. You learn the cases, learn how to apply them, and you're going for a specific result. What I learned in law school was what supplements that, such as like the policy behind decision making, why certain rules are the way are the way they are, why certain laws are the way they are. So that was missing from before, but I learned that in my classes now. Policy and, um, yeah, it's probably the biggest piece that was missing before. So now I have like a complete picture. And I know in your 3L year, you end up in a clinic where you have hands-on practice to start putting these things, making these things, uh, bring them to fruition. But I've had that already prior to law school. So mine's a little reverse. So it's just filling in. Law school is really filling in the gaps in, in many ways because I went from practice to theory almost instead of starting with theory and going into practice mm. um in terms of internships did it make it more rewarding or enriching um well i had one internship so far over the summer dare i say <laughs> what it was <laughs> <laughs> it was actually a corporate law internship and i loved it it was great it was a lot of work but i learned a lot um and i don't and again i don't think my prior experience while incarcerated made that experience more enriching. I loved it for what it was. It Everything I learned there was something new. There mm. were areas of law that I had never thought of looking into, like what's the liability of long-term carbon dioxide storage and leakage, um, you know, stuff like that, all types of things. So cool. It was a great learning experience. Maybe this is like a the same question, but rephrase a little differently. How do you think your experience with bad attorneys is going to change the way you approach your practice and hopefully be a good attorney? That's a good question. I can ramble first, Jordan, if you want. <laughs> okay. So my experience with bad attorneys was extensive. <laughs> and because of that, I'm determined to be the kind of attorney that gives his client the best representation possible, the representation he's he or she is constantly, constitutionally uh, entitled to. Um, I found that a lot of, in doing my prior work and in my own case too, a lot of attorneys don't give the amount of attention necessary for their client. And it might be because they're overloaded, they might have too many clients all at one time or too many trials at one time. So they really can't give like a hyper-focused approach to any one case. And that really can be to the client's detriment. 
I don't want to be that kind of attorney. I want to be the one who's willing to listen to what the, the client has to say, explore new possibilities, new arguments, find the way to win or get the best possible outcome for this client always. And in my own particular, my own specific situation, I had a trial attorney or an attorney who's supposed to be a trial attorney um, tell me that all we could do was take a plea, a plea of guilty, that he would charge more money. He would need to charge more money, even though he had been assigned by the court, he would need some more money to actually think of going to trial. And the whole time I wanted to go to trial because I thought I had an arguable case. You know, I could have lost too. But at the time I was willing to take that risk. But my attorney was like, no, I don't even have time to prepare for trial. So we can't even talk about that. Plea only. Meanwhile, I had a co-defendant who was also arrested with me. And his attorney said, no, we should go to trial. I think we can win. And so his his attorney took his case to trial. Mine said, no, we're going to take a plea. We can't win trial. And his was also... 18B appointed by the courts? Yeah, also assigned by the court. Not even um, making more money for the effort. Yeah. And they literally had the same evidence against us, against us both. In the end, just to keep the story short, my co-defense attorney won trial. My co-defendant was found not guilty in all counts. Mm. And meanwhile, my attorney forced me to take a plea because he refused to to investigate and prepare for trial to begin, begin with. So... Same case, same evidence, same everything, two vastly different outcomes. And I spent much of my incarceration challenging, you know, trying to fight my own case while helping others at the same time. And it was difficult. I ended up getting a a judicial hearing, an evidentiary hearing in like 2013, finally. But even then, the judge was like super biased in favor of my old attorney who came to testify at the hearing. Mm -hmm. And you could tell that every little break that happened, like five minute break, my my old attorney went back into the chambers with the judge and you could see them through the open door like shaking hands and patting each other on the back and joking around and laughing and yeah. then they come back out and get back on the stand i'm like what what the hell <laughs> like this should not be allowed but um it's tough because you're in law school now plus you have years of experience in all of this and so you you know the ins and the outs of this whole thing but at the time you're young you don't know any better and like you got yeah. an attorney you just do what they say Yep, exactly. That's one of the worst things is when you first get when you first enter the system and you really don't know what's happening. You literally only have your attorney as your lifeline. So you're gonna believe almost anything that, that attorney says. And if that attorney does not want to do any extra work, there's nothing you can do to force them to do it. And because you also don't know what the standards are for effective representation at that time, you don't know if what your attorney is doing is actually enough or if it's something that's actually gonna be detrimental to you. Like you just don't know. Um so it was, it was a terrible disadvantage to not be knowledgeable about law when I was a teenager <laughs> <laughs> and, and also getting arrested at the same time. Um, now I have a lot of knowledge from real life experience, from helping other people and law school on top of that. I wish I had my brain back then yeah. when I was 19. Mm. Jordan, what about you? Experience with attorneys that maybe makes you want to be a different type of attorney. Well, so my experience with my attorney, uh, I paid her like fifteen thousand for a plea. Right, but the question you asked, I think, is something that that actually goes with the whole prison environment, and that's that's reputation, right? So, in law, as in prison, it's always about uh, building a reputation, right? So. I didn't come to law school to be a shitty lawyer. Um, I've, and, and I've seen plenty of shitty lawyers. I've seen guys um, 
you know, guys' case, guys' discoveries, and, and you know, plenty of mistakes. Um, and so, you know, I, I was always worried about my reputation in prison, and just like I'm always going to be worried about my reputation as an attorney. I, um, that's something that has to, you know, especially starting out, that's going to have to be cultivated. Mm -hmm. Um, and just, I just think hard work and diligence, honestly, um, I think your clients can, can feel that and, and just having a, a sense of empathy, just, you know, just always be reminded that you were in the other seat at one point. And so I think if you can just really do those two things, I don't think you'd be a shitty lawyer. What kind of lawyer was that? Poop lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I get asked quite a bit to like talk to prospective students or, you know, to have a relationship with our admissions department and explain like a lot of people get it. I'm not, you know, I'm not like explaining, I guess, but to speak on why uh, law schools, which is historically this like elite exclusive environment that only some people have access to why they should open more seats up to formerly incarcerated people or to justice impacted people in in general people with lived experiences in all different walks of life do you guys have any thoughts about that like like why why was it a good idea for our school to accept you as a student and as we maybe advocate yeah. mentor look toward future classes and maybe people are listening to this and just like us, they're finding out for the first time that they could go to law school. Why, uh, why should these schools open their doors to students like us? And what do we, what do we bring to the, to the table? That's like unique. And why does it matter? The lived experience is what's unique, but I think it goes back to something Jordan mentioned a few minutes ago about empathy from having sat on the other side of that table as the client and gone through these experiences. Um, by having that first, you know, that first person perspective, you know what it's like, you know what what they're going through, you can identify with them, empathize with them. You also know the kind of representation you wish you might have had while you're on that side of the table. And so knowing these things from having gone through them, I think can make you a better, better attorney. And by including more people who've been impacted by the system that people are trying to change, I think it can actually cause a type of change that people in those situations really need rather than all the change being suggested from people outside of it who have never gone, gone through those types of struggles. I mean, tons of people help and can fight and advocate for changes, but it's different when their life has been perfect in every way and they have not had the same struggles. They're great to have as allies and can do a lot of good, but it's something different when you get someone who's actually gone through the fire and come out on the other side and says, all right, now I also wanna be part of the change because they bring an insight and perspective that's different from what others can bring. And again, I think it makes you more empathetic and willing to go the extra mile for whoever it is you're trying to help in the courtroom. And I think that's why more law schools should um, allow formerly incarcerated people and any other people who have gone through struggles of any type into law school. There's a time when it's like, you don't wanna talk about bad stuff from your life in your application for a school, for a job or whatever. It, it sort of feels like maybe the time is coming when people who are reading those applications and selecting who gets in and who doesn't 
should should look for the struggles you've gone through, maybe the times you failed or whatever. Like in in my opinion, that if if you are able to write about stuff like that, ways that bad decisions you've made or things that have been done to you or you know just bad things that have happened in your life and you're able to write about how you've overcome those obstacles what you did afterwards who you are now how that fuels your fire i think that says a lot about your character it talks you know that shows resilience it shows like uh, a level of strength that maybe other ca- applicants don't have mm-hmm. i i just I always try to tell people in these these like events when we're asked to talk on this i always try to say like that's that's what you should be looking for in applicants. You want to know what type of student can make it through law school and then and then make a name for themselves in the legal field. Look for people who have resilience. Look for people who have strength. Look for people who've proven that already. And I don't think that checking that box should get your application thrown out. I think that's like, that should put you to the front of the line, get you a read anyways. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's good. And I wish more employers and other people did things like that. Um, because when they do do things like that, your application and what you're writing about yourself can set you apart from other people because they realize you have gone through struggles. You have an extra effort to achieve or to, to get where you're at today. Um, and I think those are qualities that are easily transferable to any type of position. So any employer should want those things. But there are also a ton of employers who don't sit down for conversations like that. And so when you try to explain something like that, they might still attach a certain stigma to the information you're sharing say oh automatically this guy cannot be trusted um because he's got a conviction on his record and so that's another thing that's still you know that has not disappeared the stigma is still there there's still plenty of employers who are discriminating um, but i do wish there were more who were like the type you were just describing but i also think it's up to us as formerly incarcerated people and law students and advocates etc to try to push that change and bring awareness to these issues and show people, employers particularly, the ones that don't hire formerly incarcerated people, that we are trustworthy, you're not defined by your past, and that you can still do great things and you know you deserve to be given a chance. Um, I think more employers need to hear that message and see people have actually succeeded because then if they see it happening in practice elsewhere, they might be more inclined to do it in their own companies. So, I have some specific, what you were just talking about, it reminded me, I have some really specific moments in my life mm-hmm. where I broke a lot of people's trust and that's true. But then I have like more than 10 years after that, where every day I showed up as like the most dependable guy on the job, the most dependable friend, mm-hmm. et cetera. And I feel like it, it is true. You see a conviction and, and it does say something about me. There's some, there's some negative things about me and, and who I've been, you know, like I've, I've let people down, like I've hurt people, et cetera. But you see like the timeline there and anything that's happened after that. And that says a lot of good things about me too, about you guys and other applicants. So I do, I totally agree with what you're saying that there's like, there's more to the story than checking a box and that saying Mm -hmm. everything there is to say about you. Yep, still a lot of work to do in that area. Yeah. To get past, you know, to reduce the, the effect of the stigma that exists because of a, uh, a felony conviction or any conviction or arrest. So we were talking about what we bring to the table, to the practice of law, the empathy, specifically like I think about, I'm sitting with a client who's offered a plea deal and 
I know what I'm asking when I'm asking him to take it or not take it, you know? What about when you get into some sticky situations, like because of your experience with attorneys, with plea negotiations, also with prison, let's say you're a defense attorney now, just put yourself out there and a client is offered a plea deal that that if you were in his shoes, you wouldn't like. And then he's offered a chance to snitch, to get himself off the hook. Now, there are a lot of attorneys who are just looking for that W. And it may be in this guy's best interest to avoid prison and to make that decision. Now, but because of your lived experience, this is, a, this is an ethical, a law ethics hypo, right? That a lot of people are asked in school. But because of your lived experience, it's a different calculus because <laughs> <laughs> you know what you're asking either way there. So you don't have to talk specifically on, on those issues, but the question is like exactly what goes through your mind when you're, when you're imagine yourself with a client someday and, and knowing what you're asking them to agree to one way or another. <clears throat> so this brings me to a conversation that I had a while back with Mark Ramirez, right? When he was talking about, you know, what was I interested in doing when I get out of law school? And he broke it down into two parts, really. State public defender, federal public defender, right? He was like, state, uh, as a state public defender, you'll be taking a lot of pleas. Now, he's like, you know, I don't know if you're, if you're comfortable with, with, Copping a lot of people out. He was like, but if you work for uh, as a federal um, public defender, he was like, you're going to have to deal with snitching a lot because the feds have all the evidence already. That's why they brought the case. So as a federal public defender, you're going to be dealing with a lot of talent. And I don't know if you're all right with that. And I guess the, the short answer is I don't know if I'm all right with that. I I I so i know the ultimate goal has to be the client and what's best for the client right so if an offer was brought for uh, my client to possibly bring information on somebody else you know what i have to relay that information to the client and um you know what it's something like that i wouldn't even i would do my best to just be real matter of fact about it this is what they want, uh, and it's up to you. And if they want my advice, I'd be more than willing to give my advice. Yeah, that's something you bring that a lot of attorneys don't. They can't turn to their average attorney and say, but if I do option A or B, what does it mean for me? But you can tell them. I, I can, and I can tell you that in the state of New York, they have snitch hunters in prison. Like, that's a real thing. So. I also don't want to scare them from making a decision that might be best for them too. So it like, it, I just want to be as, as matter of fact about it. I don't like it, but it is a part of lawyering. Do you think it's at least good that you, you can tell them more of the story from your own, you know, just like seeing what it's like inside and, where the average attorney may not, they might just be trying to get them to do what's best for them and not be able to give them all the Well, I think the problem is that I don't want to scare them away from not telling when it would be 
right? Because I, uh, I haven't seen too many good instances of somebody telling in prison and it ended up being good, you know, or they weren't housed in another part of the prison, not with general population because they can't live anywhere else. So, so there's a lot that goes into telling behind, you know, it's more than just being in a courtroom and pointing a finger. There's a lot of um, potential repercussions that come from it. So I guess I, I don't feel no way, I guess, more or less about snitching because they're not telling on me mm-hmm. or any of my loved ones or friends. And it's a part of the job. So I just want to try and just step out from myself and 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 just be as matter of fact about um, what the court is looking for. Yeah. Yeah, I pretty much agree with uh, Jordan. <laughs> That's a tricky question because you know the lived experience is definitely you know something you're not going to forget and so it's going to come into your mind if you ever do have a client who has the option to cooperate with uh you know the prosecutor um again it should be a decision the client's going to have to make i'll try to counsel the client give them some pros and cons about what it could be a lot of people you know try to avoid jail or prison at any cost and so they will not there'll probably be many people who don't have any problem doing with, you know, dealing with, you know, working with a prosecutor in that way. Um, and as an officer of the court, attorneys are, you know, upholding the constitution and supposed to provide constitutionally adequate representation. And that includes doing whatever, you know, is in the best interest of the client. Um, I don't think I could tell the client, no, you can't do this. The only time I think I might say, no, don't do it is if I feel that there's a really good chance we can win trial or hold out for a better plea without that component involved. Um, I would definitely try to advocate, if I'm the one negotiating the deal for, on behalf of the client, I definitely try to advocate for some deal that does not include that particular component. Uh, that way everyone is happy and the, cl- the client's life is a little more safe going forward mm. um, and his relatives, et cetera, because you know, there's definitely retaliation in cases like that um, against people who testify against other people. And that's a very real thing. And I think any attorney who thinks it isn't just focuses only on the client, which you should do, but without knowing the real life consequences that come after that. And they're focused on the moment. Yeah, exactly. Not like what's best for them. In maybe moment, maybe yeah. doing a little more time and not, not, you know, having like a safer time of it, not just winning today. Yeah, but um, even though I personally wouldn't do it, like I wouldn't say, oh yeah, go do that. Mm-hmm. In that particular client's case, if that's the offer, I have to I have to share it with him. I have to give it to him and let him decide and just give him some pros, give him some cons, assess the strength of our case versus the prosecutor's case, and see what he wants he or she wants to do. Um, that's definitely a tough question, tough issue. I can already tell you did good on the MPRE. Well, I don't know if I did good. I saying all it. the right things. <laughs> I passed it. I don't <laughs> know if it was good or not, but good, good, good. I've told you about in the past, Mm -hmm. about David Huck, about when I did the research for him, sent the letter to the attorney, then his attorneys wrote back and said, no, this issue has no merit. I'm not going to include it in the brief. And so because of the judicial department he was in, which is I think the third, third or fourth department, 
the rules there in that court are that once your attorney files a brief, you can file a pro se supplemental brief within, I don't know if it's 30 days or 45 days of the attorney filing his main brief. Whereas in the first or second department, you'd have to ask permission from the appellate division to file that supplemental brief. But up there, um, you didn't have to, you could just file it as a matter of course after the attorney files his brief. And so that guy, David Huck, when you know, I tried to help him, I did help him. But in the beginning, I didn't want to do the work, and so I gave it to his attorney. But I did the research, drafted a legal memo, sent it to his attorney, and that's when the attorney wrote back and said, no, this has no merit. I'm not going to include it. And so I was like, all right, well, case over. He doesn't want to do it. David Huck was like, no, come on, Phil. If you said it's a good issue, then it's a good issue. I trust you. I need you to do something with this. I'm like, ah, oh, damn it. Because, you know, my time was already filled up. I, had, I was kind of too busy to really help him any further. But um, I also was um, also couldn't resist the the urge to not let this go because I did know that the two issues, I found them two issues that I thought were good. I didn't want them to just fall to the wayside and not be argued anywhere because his attorney thought they were bad issues. And so I said, all right, fine. So I did the pro se supplemental brief for him on those two issues. One was a repugnant verdict issue and the other one was, I'm not sure what it would be called, but it was like a legal impossibility. They used the wrong predicate felony to sustain a felony assault charge and the two charges the, the the underlying felony count they use was not allowed to be used as a predicate as a felony as a predicate felony for the main charge because the intent elements were were different um and so i did the brief for him supplemental brief filed it in court and then three months later the decision came back and you got the decision the first half of the court's decision talks about the attorney's main brief and it says this issue of the attorney raised has no merit, so we reject this one. This issue has no merit, reject this one. Then it goes, turning now to the defendant's pro se supplemental brief, blah, 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 blah. We believe this has merit. We're also going to in, to review it in the interest of justice because it was one of, it's an issue that the trial judge missed, the prosecutor missed, the trial attorney missed, and so no one preserved it on the record for appellate review at all. But in New York, there's an interest of justice component to appellate review that allows courts, in appellate division specifically, to review issues that were not preserved in the lower court. So I had to also include a separate argument for that in this brief. And they agreed and said, okay, this issue is serious enough. We will exercise that power to review without it being preserved. And then they reversed the conviction on the legal impossibility uh, issue I was just discussing. And so when that conviction went out the window, that was a, he had a 14 to life sentence on that conviction. And it was gone like that. And that's a case where I was a prisoner I learned the law myself. I helped this guy put together the brief, mailed it in for him and everything. And he had a paid attorney. I mean, it was paid, but he was assigned by whatever the public defender was in, in that area. Um, so someone has been practicing law for many years told me that this issue could not help this client. And so he wasn't going to raise it. And so he didn't raise it. Luckily, I knew what I was talking about and I raised it anyway. And that's what got him the reversal. But had I had he not met me or had I not done the work, he would have still been sitting in prison now with a 14 to life sentence because his attorney who went to law school, did all this stuff, passed the bar, helps other people, decided that this issue wasn't worth arguing. Um, and that's the kind of thing you're not going to see in a law journal because I was a prisoner doing this. You're not going to see that in a book somewhere. So that's definitely an example, I think, of lived experience that can constitute legal scholarship. There's so much went into that and also opened the door on on all types of legal problems about 
um, attorneys being able to issue spot correctly and knowing when what issues do have merit and when to include an issue, even if you think it doesn't have merit or could be somewhat meritorious. Like there was no reason for that attorney to say no to that issue. He only raised like two, maybe two or three other issues in his he brief. Sounds, he sounds like the kind of attorney that wouldn't listen to you just because you were an inmate. That's another thing too. Yeah. So a lot of attorneys, um, what's the word that would be? Pompous asshole. They dismiss you. They're dismissive. They definitely very dismissive of anyone who does not have a law degree telling them how to practice. And so when he got the letter from me, I'm sure he looked at it and was like, this dude is, is locked up. Like my client should be listening, should not be listening to anybody who's locked up, et cetera. I'm the attorney. I know how to do my job, that kind of thing. So that's always present with attorneys. Jailhouse lawyers do give you wrong information sometimes. Too. Yeah, and I know a few of them who did, and I would never recommend people to them at all. I always, I was very upset at the quality of some, uh, some people's representation <laughs> because of that. That's a great example of, of um, why maybe it's important for the footnote forum this semester to put the idea into people's minds in the legal world that legal scholarship may just be more than academic scholarship, but it could include lived experience because if we're all just elitist and writing off people because they yeah. don't have the same education as me or, or the same resources as me or whatever. Or access to the same law review or anything. Yeah. Or a law review at all. We we lose out on we're we're losing something. We're not it's not like we're keeping somebody out for our own gain. We're actually losing valuable information that could lead to a, a client getting his life back. Jordan, Phil, thanks for doing this with me. <laughs> Appreciate you guys. Thanks for being at the school. Thanks for being in my life. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in again. We're going to try to bring you another episode in the spring. Whole different topic. Whole different host, probably. So uh, subscribe to that. Footnote Forum, CUNY Law Review Podcast. Smash that like button. Smash the like. Share with all your friends. And this is sponsored by Squarespace. <laughs> no, just kidding. All right, we're out. Adios. Adios.